Welcome to the very first episode of This Week in Africa, a mini episode of the Africa Blogging Podcast that focuses on key developments from across the continent. This episode will be coming to you every weekend from this week going forward. In this very first episode, we go to Kenya where the opposition leader Raila Odinga has called for new demonstrations against the government on the basis of the government's reluctance to allow the opposition party access the servers used in the last year's general elections. Further, Mr. Odinga is challenging the government's efforts at containing the rising costs of living in the country and is calling for mass actions to pressurize the government to act. And for this first episode, my guest on the show is Fred Omolo, a veteran Kenyan journalist, mathematician, and policy analyst. And after this interview, we'll also look at the top stories that we've covered for you this week on Africa Blogging. That is www.blogging.africa. Thank you very much for joining me in this episode of This Week in Africa. And like I mentioned to you earlier, the conversation around um, for this episode is going to start us in Kenya. We're going to have a conversation about developments there, which um, the opposition leader, Raila Dinga, has called for mass protests. And the backstory to this is that two weeks ago, given the current administration led by President um, William Ruto, a 14-day notice, um, or ultimatum rather, in which they were to address certain things. And the things that they were to address, them one, was the state of the economy and ensure that the cost of living comes down within those 14 days or appropriate measures are taken to bring the cost of living down. The other two issues were regards to the resolved election this last year, which was resolved by the Supreme Court, but the opposition made um, a demand that the government allow them to access the servers used in that elections for, to enable them conduct an audit. The last issue is with regards to the constitution of the Independent Electoral Office Commission, which is the body that manages electoral elections in Kenya, including the disputed 2022 presidential elections. So, Trent, before we get in, let me just lay the ground by playing this video, or rather the playing this audio from what happened yesterday where the opposition leader announced the start of public mass action and protest. Let's listen to this. We begin telling Ruto and Gachagua, our clear understanding that when we keep taking painkillers long enough, they will cease killing the pain. And that, that is when the real pain will begin. Kenya is ripe for a people's movement for the defense of democracy. And the process begins today, here and now. Ruto must go. We launch a campaign of defense of peaceful picketing, peaceful protests, boycotts, strikes, disobedience, peaceful petitions, peaceful sit-ins, and peaceful demonstrations, and it begins today and now. We also urge the victims of retrogressive policies of this illegitimate regime 
including workers, doctors, teachers, nurses, lecturers, students, and the business community to join this political revolution and movement for change. We are stronger together. As we are leaders, we commit to fight, resist, and defy this legitimate regime side by side with you until our voices are heard and respected. That there is the voice of Kenyan opposition leader, Raila Odinga. What's your take on that audio if you listen to it and what's coming up after this? I think that... Uh... On this new uh, th this new push that uh, opposition leader Raila Odinga is coming up with, he has some very very ulterior motives that he has not revealed to his supporters. Let me why start. Do you, why do you call them ulterior? Uh, because every one of those three complaints that you've mentioned has no basis at all. Let me start with the issue of uh, so-called electoral justice, okay? Mm -hmm. If you look at the affidavit that Raila Odinga himself, that Martha Karua also was enjoined on, that they presented to the Supreme Court, if you read it in, uh, as it is written and signed by him and his lawyers, and served to the respondents who are the IBC and the current president, William Ruto, mm -hmm. he, indicated, he indicated very clearly that the results which the IBC announced were numerically correct. They were numerically factual. Mm -hmm. He had lost by 200,000 votes. His only request in that affidavit was the inclusion of the rejected votes. Mm -hmm. He wanted those ones included in the tally, which would have not given William Ruto the 50% plus, plus one he required. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, 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 and which would have meant going back to mm -hmm. a runoff. Proceed. Okay. And the IBC responded by reminding him that you had requested the same thing in 2013 to deny Uhuru Kenyatta a chance to be declared the president-elect. Okay. Back then, the Supreme Court, which was led by retired uh, Chief Justice uh, Willie Mutunga, rejected that request. Now, if you understand a little bit about law, you, you understand what is called case law, right? Case law yes. creates precedence. Case law creates precedence. So you cannot come back and ask the Supreme Court to contradict itself. It had yeah. already ruled against that in 2013. You come back in yeah. 2022 and request the same thing. So once again, they rejected it. So here's the thing. Raila himself acknowledged that he had lost. He acknowledged that the IBC numbers were correct. He didn't question anything about servers at that point. Other people, activists like John Gidongo, were the ones who were talking about servers. He didn't talk about that in his prayers. He only spoke about the rejected votes. His only request was for a rerun. That request was denied. And of course, yeah. uh, as you know, we now have a new president. So why does he come back now and talk about 
opening the servers talk about I won by 2 million votes. It is simple. About a month ago, he came up with some, some report which was authored by some NGO, a foreign NGO, which coincidentally has on its board the same John Githongo who was talking about servers <laughs> last year, right? And they came up with some inc incredible mathematics that only they understood. They didn't give us any of their raw data. They just claimed, no, we won by 2 million votes, open the servers, uh, otherwise we will go for mass action. So there is absolutely no basis. Okay. In fact, so that, in law, even in opinion, there's absolutely no basis for him to talk about that when he had a very clean and clear chance to do it. If some new evidence has come up, why hasn't he presented it to the DCI? Why hasn't he presented it to the public, to the media, to all of us so that we can also scrutinize it like we scrutinize the, the, the IBC documents that led to the declaration of the current president as validly elected, right? So in my view... Right. I think that uh, that that yeah that this uh, this new uh, this new push is bringing about stolen elections about opening the servers is just a distraction. He has another agenda, and that's why I mentioned ulterior motives. Right. The second issue about the constitution of the IBC. Right. The constitution of the IBC is a very is, is a is a very black and white simple process outlined in the constitution, and it involves parliament. It involves both sides of the house. There is a selection panel. So, and he has his MPs who are not a few. There are many. There are quite a number in the in the parliament and in the senate. So, why stop a process because of 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 uh, some argument? that is not based on evidence that has been presented and judged valid, right? He, okay. Once, if, yeah. Okay, just to conclude this second issue. If, for example, today, Daniel, you and me, we have a case at the Supreme Court, you versus me, right? right. And, uh, and for some reason, the Supreme Court rules against you, right? Mm -hmm. And it renders a verdict. Yes. And it, yeah, it renders a verdict. You can still call upon the Supreme Court to review its verdict, especially if you have new evidence. You can still go there. I have MPs friends who've been ruled against uh, in the last 10 years, and they've often gone back for reviews. For example, um, current MP of Nyando, Jared Okelo. He had a petition against former MP uh, uh, what's Fred Outa, in which he lost that petition, took it all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled against him. He asked for a review and they gave him a reprieve, um, which involved, for example, uh, splitting costs. He was initially he was given a punitive ruling in which he was supposed to pay for all the costs. He asked for a review and they split the costs. Outa paid his lawyers, he paid his own lawyers. So you can still get yeah, if you present the evidence, why isn't he presenting all this evidence to the Supreme Court to have a review and therefore provide a basis to stop the constitution of the new IBC commission? Do you yeah, see that? Those two, those two first yeah. points are related yeah. in, a, in a way. But let's go to the third point, cost of living in the country. I mean, yeah, the cost you, of and living. Me, you, and, you and me live here and we know how tough things are. Yes, and uh, and uh, and uh, it's it's amazing how short the memory of the public is. How much is a liter of petrol where you are? 
uh, I think 175. That's should be like yes, between 175 and 185. Yeah, yeah. yeah four US dollars. I'm yes. saying around 1.4 US dollars. Yeah. Yeah, around 1.4. Excellent. Now, before uh, before the elections, at the start of the Ukraine war, leading up to the subsidy period. How much was a liter of 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 of, uh, of, of petrol? Um, I think there was around ten or so shillings different, if I'm not wrong. But of course, yeah, that it was, was inclusive up to, of subsidies. Yeah, inclusive of subsidies. That thing was even at at some point it was two hundred. This was subsidized fuel, which is something like one point six, one point seven dollars, and this was subsidized, right? And this was subsidized, and these subsidies were going to companies associated with the same Rahel Odinga, the same Uhuru Kenyatta, who supported him in his quest to be president, but they both lost. Right. Right now, there's no subsidy, but the price is coming down. Take another example. Um, uh, what we call corn flour, what they call corn flour, which is a staple food here, unga. The price of unga. With the subsidy was supposed to be a hundred bob, right? Yeah. Yeah, about 90 cents in dollars, right? But it was nowhere. It was subsidized, but it was nowhere. No miller provided it. And if you went and actually found a store with it, they would force you still to buy it at 250 shillings, which is about $2, right? And then you get an extra packet, which is the, <laughs> the 90 cent packet. But right now, without the subsidies, Without their companies getting all this uh, support from government, the price uh, the price is now coming down to around uh, 180, 190, 200. I was just checking yesterday when I was in the supermarket, different locations in Kenya. It's between 180 and 200, which is roughly 1.7 to 1.1.9 dollars US dollars, without the subsidy. So now you've been in this game for so long. You've been in this game yeah, for so, so long. You've my, studied this competition. Just to conclude, my my question is, how is it that with all those subsidies, things were more expensive last year than this year when there are no subsidies going to all these big companies associated with these same politicians who are calling for mass action? I get your question, and your question yeah. is very valid. But again, mm. I I ask questions here. So now I want to ask you a question. You've been in yes. this around these corridors for long enough. You've covered yes. these politici- politicians. You've been a bureau chief for one of the leading, you know, uh, news organizations in this country in a region yes. that's being controlled by the same opposition leader. Having studied him and having studied the dynamics of how politics is played out in this country. What did you say is the end goal in your analysis, or what? What are some of the goals that you think he's trying to achieve with this new? Yeah, the end goal. Uh, the end goal. I can't. I can't really speculate on what it is, but I know there's an ulterior motive. Having covered and having studied uh, this particular politician, isn't ulterior motive too strong a phrase to use? 
No, I don't think so. Not in Kenyan politics. <laughs> Not in, in Kenyan politics. Yeah, I would. In fact, I would say that's a, a, a that's a very a, that's a very kind way of phrasing it. But there's definitely something else he wants, and he's using these excuses to pile pressure, to pile pressure on 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 the government itself, to turn the to turn the public against the government itself. Because right now. As you've mentioned, I live in a region in which uh, he has full dominance politically. He decides who gets to vie on his party. And if you vie on his party, you are virtually guaranteed of winning. Two, three months ago, a CS in the current government, Eliud Owalo, was moving around distributing food because of the drought. Okay? At that time, the politicians under the Raila Odinga wing made a lot of noise and categorically stated, we don't need food. Nyanza, Western does not need relief food. Take it to where people are suffering. The same politicians are this week talking about the high cost of living. There's no food. Bring down the price of food. So you see, he's already by the by the, by, by the click, of a, click of a button, he's already turned the public in this region against the government. Okay? So in my view, there's an ulterior motive. There's another thing he is gunning at, which he wants to achieve, that he's not telling his supporters, and possibly he has already conveyed to the president, and he's not getting the response he expects, in my view. Well, this conversation was to continue, but I unfortunately lost Fred. That's Frederick Komulo on the line from this point. But we get the gist of what he's trying to say in his analysis of the current situation as it is. Frederick is a veteran Kenyan journalist and a former bureau chief with the Standard Group, one of the leading media houses in Kenya. Now, let's go on to some of the top stories that we covered for you on Africa Blogging this week. So now let me come straight to some of the stories or top stories that we've covered for you on the Africa blogging this week. And I'll just start with the English side of the website and then do two stories from there and then go to the French side of the website. The top story on the English side of the website is by our uh, South Sudanese slash Kenyan writer, Awar Alai, and she's titled this article, Closer, Russia Beckons to Africa. And I like how she starts the article. She makes an analogy of a relationship between an abusive or narcissistic partner. Just listen to this. I was doing some reading recently and came across a psychology blog that talks about the different types of personality disorders and how they impact personal relationships. She continues, one particular section talks about the combination of narcissistic, antisocial, and dependent personality disorders and how wine can have two or all three of the same at a time. Vladimir Putin and his Russia immediately came to mind. Then she explained, Putin is like a toxic partner who keeps coming back when they need you because he is so charming and seductive. Often bringing shining gifts, you succumb. Putin is back, and Salva Kiir and his South Sudan are next on his death list. 
issue, this article is about the sanctions against Russia and why Russia feels that she needs to find new partners. Of course, of late, we've seen the kind of inroads that Russia has been making in Africa. If we leave alone the involvement of uh, the Wagner Group in the Central Africa region, we've seen um, the charm offensive by the Russia's foreign ministers, you know, with visits to Uganda in the middle of the war or as soon as the war started in Ukraine. And of course, we've seen the similar visit to South Africa and even and South Africa mulling over holding joint military exercises with Russia. Of course, we know what's happening in Central Africa and, uh, you know, the president there seems to be the new the African darling of uh, Putin. And of course, now the impending or the coming visit of Putin and his highest trail on his relationship with uh, South Sudan. Of course, another interesting topic um, across the globe has been, you know, what's happening in the cryptocurrency market. And again, by the same author, Awar Ali, she's asking, Bitcoin in Africa, too exciting to be money. And here she's talking about Africa's preparedness to mainstream Bitcoin as legal tender. She's talking about what's happening again in the Central African Republic. We were second time referring to the Central African Republic in this context, uh, Central Africa's Republic's decision to officially onboard the digital currency as legal tender. And she wonders, this is Central Africa Republic, a country where nine out of every 10 people do not have internet, where one in seven do not have electricity. You remember internet and electricity are key components of the Bitcoin trade. So what was the rationale of Faustin in adopting Bitcoin as a legal tender? when the very infrastructure it requires to be, brought, to be bought, sold, or used is for all intent and purposes non-existent in the country she possesses. Quite an interesting read, and there's quite also very interesting data on how African economies there are performing, which countries are currently leading in terms of the Bitcoin trade, what are their per capita incomes, how much... Um, money is then left available to some of these um, populations of these countries to be able to use Bitcoin for speculative trade purposes and generally just, you know, making her argument hard why she feels it's not yet the time for Africa to mainstream cryptocurrencies. And lastly, on the English side, Nigeria was not the only election that we were having on the continent. There's another election that's coming this year and now we can clearly tell you that this election that's happening in the southern part of the continent will happen between the 20th and 26th of August, 2023. We're still not sure. So which country am I talking about? Of course, it's Zimbabwe. And we had a conversation about this earlier in December when we hosted Paida Moya Muzulu, our contributor from Zimbabwe on this continent, on this podcast rather. And today he's back. Earlier this week, he sent us an article which he titled Zimbabwe August Paul marred by delimitation flaws. And what's happening? Um, the Zimbabwe president has started the ball rolling for the 2023 general election that will be held in the last week of August after gazetting the delimitation report, creating a new electoral boundary. But it is those electoral boundaries that is creating cause for alarm. Why? Paida Moya Muzulu is saying. There are flaws in this delimitation report. And he quotes in his article, Constitutional Legal Think Tank, Veritas, and they say this, explaining what exactly those flaws are. And they say, in our election watch for February 2023, we pointed out 
that the preliminary delimitations report, the ZEC, that's Electoral Commission in Zimbabwe, had used an incorrect formula to calculate the permissible variations in voter numbers between constituencies and wards. Instead of allowing a maximum of 20% variation, as laid down in Section 1616 of the Constitution, ZEC's formulas allowed variations of up to 40%. It seems from pages 9 to 12 of the proclamation that the ZEC, again, that's the Electoral Commission, has continued to use this formula for its final delimitation. If that is so, then the delimitation is unconstitutional. And here is how Paida Moyo Muzolo explains the context of this comment. This comment came in the wake of having constituencies in urban areas having an average of 33,000 voters, while some rural constituencies have as low as 22,000 voters. This defeats the purpose of equality of the vote, as the rural vote seems to carry more weight here. The new boundaries in some areas have been designed in a manner that dilutes urban voters. He says, there are many constituencies in Arare metropolitan province that have been joined to rural or peri-urban areas. So you can read more about this on our website that is www.login.africa. But now, before I sign off, let's see what's happening on the French side. And here, there is chaos that rocked the visit to DRC by French President Emmanuel Macron. You can imagine Macron is already going through demonstrations and protests in his own countries, by workers mostly, and where they are protesting his attempts to increase the retirement age. And then when he gets over to Kinshasa for a state visit last week on Friday, he is met by equal demonstrations. One, some of them are being held around the French embassy in Kinshasa. And our DRC contributor, Jean Hubert Bondo, he says this in his article, which I would also advise you to go into our website, on the French section of our website, to read more about. On the walls of the French embassy in the Congolese capital, one could read, Macron assassin! Macron equals Kagame! You could also hear cries for help, cries such as, Help Putin! Whoa. Okay. So why are they equating Macron to Kagame? Of course, there's a lot that has been happening, um, of course, involving the question of uh, Rwanda and their support for the M23 rebels that are creating havoc in the eastern part of DRC. And Macron is seen to be, you know, not doing enough to hold off Kagame and his support, or alleged support in this case, let me say to um, the M23 rebels. And he goes further to quote an NGO report which says that suddenly in the eyes of the Congolese population, any Western leader who wants to go to the DRC is not welcome until they openly name Kigali in the destabilization of Eastern Congo. So basically they want um, Macron's government to take a stand against Kigali. Well, we'll see how this plays out. And of course, we'll also try to bring you, you know, more details in terms of coverage 
into what's happening between um, uh, in the DRC, especially in the eastern part of the country, where the Congolese army and backed up by the East African Standing Force are fighting the M23 rebels, which um, the DRC has officially accused of uh, um, of undermining their efforts in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo by supporting the M23 rebels. So we'll get more details onto that. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of This Week in Africa, a mini episode of the Africa Blogging Podcast. Sorry for some shakiness in my voice. I've not been feeling too well. This particular episode was mostly recorded from my hospital bed, but let's hope we'll have a better sounding podcast next week. My name is Daniel Omide. Remember that you can listen to this podcast from any of your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to like us, share us, follow us, and also tell your friends about us. This podcast is a production of the Africa Blogging Network, the international blogger network that features a plurality of voices and views supporting democratic culture and debate in sub-Sahara Africa. The Africa Blogging Network is affiliated with Cast Media Africa, a program of the Conrad Adenu Stifter. The views expressed in this podcast do not in any way represent the views of Africa Blogging as a network or its partner organizations. 